Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The police did know Mark Chivers had killed before, a fact Maria only discovered when he served time in prison for assaulting her. Yet by the time he was released, officers had disabled a panic alarm they'd installed in the house and failed to carry out any risk assessment when they did so. I feel they had a lack of care for me and my mother when they knew the danger, and the danger was clearly there. Um, I felt there was a, a lack of urgency and I just I don't believe they really had the respect or the care for me and my mother. Today, as the police watchdog published a second critical report into the events leading up to Maria's death, Essex police promised lessons would be learned. Mistakes were made. Individuals believed that the relationship uh, had ended and that there was no further contact. In fact, uh, Miss Stubbings had ended the relationship, but... Uh, Chivers was continuing to harass and stalk her, uh, and that was missed. But Bengi, together with his sister and uncle, now want a much wider public inquiry into whether victims of domestic violence get the protection they deserve. They say they don't want Maria's death to be in vain, and this would be a fitting legacy for her. She's not gone. She's still with me, I believe. She may be gone physically, but... Spiritually, she's always with me. She drives my every move. So, she's never gone. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm continuing my important conversation with my very special guest, Celia Peachy, who's the daughter of Maria Stubbings. Now, as usual, listener discretion is advised. And I also want to start by asking you a favour. If you like what I do and find these interviews and series interesting and useful, please do share and recommend Crime Analyst to others. Also, if you could take two minutes to drop a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst, that would be amazing. It really helps others find my work and these very important conversations, and it could just save a life. And that's exactly why I do what I do. Okay, so where we left off, we were talking about the fact that Maria called the police numerous times asking for help. So let's rejoin the conversation. And she did try and do everything that was right. And yes, we know, you know, on average around 33 times someone will experience abuse and it takes on average seven times to leave the abuser. But your mother was doing everything right to let people know what was happening to her particularly in terms of, of the police. And unfortunately, they didn't think it was a serious enough a case to refer it to the MAP meeting, the Multi-Agency Public Protection Arrangement. And I remember re- reviewing that part specifically because I couldn't understand why a man as dangerous as him wasn't being heard under the MAPA arrangements, the Multi-Agency Public Protection Arrangement. Mm-hmm. And it was deemed that it just wasn't seen as serious enough. Well, he had only killed his previous partner. And I, and to this day, 
still keep saying, what will it take for it to be seen as serious enough? Why do we see a man killing a woman, a, a woman that he was meant to love and care for, as somehow being not dangerous, not risky, not shocking, not horrific? It's exactly the same as killing a stranger. Why do we disaggregate these things? In fact, it's even worse because there was a trust component there. But a DCI made a decision that it wasn't serious enough. And that's why there was no risk management placed around him. And you, you've talked about it numerous times of when will domestic abuse, when will coercive control be taken seriously? Because these are the most dangerous of men. These are the perpetrators that should be red flagged and should be being managed. And I say it time and time again, but there's some kind of disconnect where people think, well, they're known. There's been a relationship. It's just a domestic. That phrase that That's we've been that trying phrase. to eradicate, you know, and, and that's been for me 25 years trying to eradicate that culture where well, people think, well, it's not serious. Yeah. I, I, for me, I've been digging really deep into my heart and soul. As, as you are well aware, you go on a deep, deep journey of self-inquiry after something like this happens and question the whole point of being alive as, and the meaning of it all, you know. And I've come up with some really amazing uh, realizations about domination culture and how, you know, we've normalized derogatory behavior. The media have, you know, they have Sadly, and, and I don't want to say they, I just think that we all need to wake up to the fact that derogatory behavior is not normal, that violence isn't normal, that love shouldn't hurt, and that, you know, that we need to understand a new way of communicating. And we've been kind of indoctrinated with what is debate. So especially if you're in a couple or, I mean, different from mum's case, because this man was a psychological sociopath who was going to kill regardless. But, and, and, and I guess in many ways, lots of these other men because of the patterns however you know when you're in a relationship and you get activated you you want to there's like between two people they start to argue and shout over each other and they have no idea how to de-escalate what's coming up within within the body you know that stored trauma and then that kind of fight or flight response and and i've just become very very aware of how how we have normalized um such sad ways of interacting you know that that thoughtfulness and respect are things that are kind of vague and blasé and a little bit um I don't know just it's not dramatic enough to catch people's attention in some way and that you know that we all need to really assess our view of life and what's important and how we treat each other and what we consider normal and if we move you know how we move forward because domestic abuse as you're more than aware has gone up by god knows how much during the the the, the previous lockdown and it's had to escalate to such a degree for us to actually go well, it's not just a domestic this is not normal. We're not supposed to get in love. That's a warped perception of love. Love is is something that for me is about encouraging another's freedom and sovereignty. It's it's a beautiful thing where you are able to be a strong individual that's connected in co-creating a third dimension with another individual. I'm not supposed to lose my identity and hand over who I am to someone else. And and the media also with with them. Um, with how they portray so-called victims, because I refuse to be called a victim. I am a pioneer. I, I'm choosing to go into the unknown and take responsibility for how I move forward from this experience. And so I, I call on the media to support, you know, 
so-called victims or survivors recovery when they report on these things and focus on the perpetrator and focus on raising the image of someone that's been through something and and not focus too much on the horror of the details but how that person is looking to to grow from that experience so that we can you know build the strength and resilience in in people as a collective at Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. When you're talking about how relationship dynamics happen and this sort of control aspect control versus love, where someone's trying to shrink someone's world rather than grow it, that that's mm. what we tend to see a lot with domestic abuse, that it does become about control. And the person you love, you want them to reach their full potential in every way, and you lift them up to support them to reach that full potential. And people might think that that's very woo-woo, but actually that is what a healthy relationship looks like. The problem is we're not taught or encouraged to understand healthy relationships, other than if something terrible happens to us, then maybe we might seek it out for ourselves to understand ourselves and how mm. we played a part in something happening or how we want to survive whatever it was that happened and our soul needs to do that. But I think too often we don't talk about this. We talk about age. Uh, well, people talk about sex and what sex is, the mechanics of it when it's age appropriate, but we don't talk about the emotional healthy aspect that sits around that. And I think that is a major problem. I do talk about that a lot, particularly with young girls, 
But unfortunately yeah. for your mother, I do believe she was interacting with a psychopath. And I do believe yes. that actually whatever she did would have been, it wasn't about her, it was about him. And you describing his behaviour of, we know about Sabine Rappel, but your mother and the neighbour next door, that tells me he's very predatory and the lack of remorse and the lack of empathy. So with someone like him, actually, it would be very difficult for your mother to find any way of managing him. But unfortunately, the police didn't understand anything about who he was and they weren't asking the right questions. And I think what you said about being a survivor and a thriver and raising the status of people when they've experienced something as horrific as what your mother did and the legacy of it, we should be holding people up and not just talking about the sensational, grisly details of what happened as if it happened in a vacuum. And then, of course, everything that happens thereafter, because for you, this is a a lifelong legacy. And I'm glad you talk, you're talking from a perspective of, you know, a, a daughter, a child, a woman who's now into adulthood, but it has left a legacy. And some of that, I, I've known you for some time now, some of that is a good legacy, actually, in the sense of the good that you're putting into the world. It's not always about the terrible things. And I think that that is just so empowering. It's so good for people to hear that there is life for you afterwards. It doesn't define you. It's something that happened. And I'm sure your mum would really want you to use this as a positive influence on your life and the world as part of the legacy. Oh, thank you for saying that. Absolutely. You know, my mum was possibly one of the most loving, kind people. Like she she always wanted to see the best in people. She didn't look at what people looked like, you know, and and she she just wanted to lift people up. And I and I to her detriment, she wanted to help someone that was lower than her that didn't want to help themselves. And as we've spoken before, you know, even with family, it's been very difficult. If someone can't help, if they're not willing to help themselves, I've had to give them a wide berth because I cannot afford to relive that trauma. And and it's about all of us now taking another level of responsibility, finding a way to respond to to life's challenges that we don't just automatically go into the victim identity. And so I guess with my mum, there wasn't enough awareness that there is now, you know, there wasn't the access to the internet. So she couldn't have Googled patterns of behavior or, you know, narcissism or sociopath. You know, if it was happening to you or I, we would be on that stuff. We would be Googling. We would be talking to people. But she didn't have that. She was a slightly different generation and there wasn't the access to the awareness now. So, you know, my message to all women is, is like, what is your perception of love? Clean away these warped perceptions. If a man, if your body doesn't feel expanded and empowered and you, you know, you can feel like you can be more of who you are, then seriously, take a, give it a wide berth because jealousy and, you know, oppression and suppression is not love. And the government need to fund the domestic abuse bill. They need to see that these men need help. They need help. There's so much trauma in these men that they've normalized, you know, they fear a woman making them feel something so alien and so they want to crush it. They need help and the police need training and the whole system needs reforming. It's, it just, it's going to take all of us, you know, to really step up with this message because I, I really don't want to blame 
and point the finger. And I, and I love men. I think there are some amazing men in the world. And I have to constantly keep realigning my focus to those ones that really do honor women and that they do, you know, they, they, they know how to co- conduct themselves respectfully and honor a woman's boundaries and ask permission for for certain levels of entry into their life or to their you know to their um their space and uh you know that's what i want for the next generation of men is to have that emotional intelligence and capacity so that they don't feel like killing themselves or killing another person because they have no understanding of themselves and how to to make a make a connection with someone you know so it's yeah, it's a deep topic and it's mum's death has left the legacy of helping me really understand the nature of love. You know, like what is love to me? How how do I choose to co-create very gently with someone? And and gentleness has been a real key thing. Um because everybody's scared. Everybody wants love and everybody's scared of being hurt and they kind of want to hurt another person before they get hurt or deflect or push away and we can't afford to be like that anymore, you know. Um I see so many of us struggling alone and we just we just don't have to do that anymore. We need to learn how to build trust and and the first thing that the system can do is give the police officers the the well-deserved training they need to feel good about who they are in service of of the public. They deserve that training. Why should they just get on with it and and have to tick a box and be forced to slog through like slaves one incident incident after another? They're humans. They deserve to have this training and to feel like they're doing something honourable. Well, you're talking about the coercive control training, which yes. having changed the law on coercive control, um, which is a very big step, enabling women like your mum to call the police and then the right set of questions to be asked and then the legislation being used, coercive control and stalking. But we know, unfortunately, that only a handful of forces are trained and they're charged a separate fee to be trained by College of Policing and and Safe Life. So there hasn't been a big take-up, which is very unfortunate. Whereas compared to Scotland, where when the law, before the law was about to change, the executive gave an extra... Uh, I, th- I think it was two million into the pot for policing to train police and the judicial college, actually, the, the judges. And of course, we know that that meant that they were already halfway there to success before the legislation came in. But unfortunately, in England and Wales, we're still playing catch up. So that's the training that, that you're talking about. I've been running that training for many years, actually. I ran the first training session on coercive control before the law came in, uh, funded by my charity, Paladin, to ensure that as many police and others were trained. And I always said that with the new legislation, there should be training and funding for training. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. So the legacy, you know, so many women being murdered, we're still saying the same things, that training is needed, but actually cultural change is needed. And yeah, I think really when you're talking about the domestic violence, it's now the act, it's now the law. It's taken four years for that piece of legislation to come in. And as you quite rightly mentioned, the pandemic happened at the at the tail end of it, where actually more women were being killed because people were being told to stay at home. And entitled men felt that it was their right to kill more women. And all the time we were pressing government to do more. And their answer was to do a campaign where you draw a heart on your hand to say you're not alone. Where actually domestic violence and abuse is the most isolating behaviour. And 
we have to remember that your mum and many others do call the police. And therefore, when police are called, we want them to ask the right questions because that is a lifeline. But unfortunately, there is a cultural problem. Go on. Yes. No, well, they didn't even ask questions in my mum's case. You know, like they literally just took that at face value. And then, you know, to disarm the panic alarm on his release, like no one's responsible for that. Like, how is that even possible? And and I just feel, you know, it might sound woo-woo, it might sound spiritual to some people, but I believe that we need to humanise the system. We need to humanise the police. We need to equip them with the understanding of coercive control, not just for their service of the public, but so that they can clear it from their own lives. You know, I've been studying uh, non-violent communication and dialogue, as I, as I mentioned previously, because the awareness was is that we're all kind of overpowering each other and we need to find a way of asking questions and having a deeper reading. And the police need to understand the subtle complexities of power imbalances, not only for their service, but so that they don't have to endure it in their own lives because they have personal lives, they have families. And, you know, I think that, yeah, I I feel that there's a real, um, they need to take responsibility, but they need to be given the tools to be able to do that. And accountability is huge. Oh, and I, I think the accountability part is what we're we're lacking at every stage. And you mentioned it, it's not about blaming, and I agree with you. I've said throughout cases that I've covered, it's not about apportioning blame, but accountability is important and responsibility taking. Mm-hmm. And I think that key point that when Chivers was released from prison after a four-month sentence to dismantle the panic alarm that's in your mother's house at that very point that the police put in, who made that decision and based on what? Because it's counterintuitive that a high-risk offender's coming out and the victim doesn't even have a panic alarm to disable it, to do nothing and actually do the absolute opposite, not to keep her safe. Well, accountability was lacking and that's what you and your family were trying to ensure happened. And I remember the first Independent Police Complaints Commission report I remember actually your family at the time, you and your brother and uncle speaking out because the first report, the the remit was so narrow and the investigation was flawed. And you made the point that it was unacceptable for that to be a flawed reinvestigation, if you will, as to what went wrong. And it took four and a half years for the next report to be published. I can't even imagine how that must have felt for you all when you're expecting answers. Oh, gosh, I, you feel like you someone said to me, they said, oh, you can't move on when that's hanging over you. And I thought, oh, you know, I'd kind of normalize this lead weight in my body, you know, not feeling good enough, feeling like I couldn't really feel this vibrant life force that is possible. And I remember when it finally was over, I went through another round of grief, you know, because I'd been holding on to the, the the shadows and the, the all of those paperwork and all of that narrative for so long and and for them to calling all lovers of mystery prepare to don your detective hat in june's journey a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of june parker a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death 
Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Sadly, you know, there were so many lies. No one taking responsibility. I mean, how can someone, no one, someone made that decision and no, no one was ever held accountable for turning off that panic alarm. And was my mother ever informed that, by the way, that's not going to work when he's released from prison? I mean, wow. And it's just, uh, things don't need to take that long. And in fact, I feel like it's, <laughs> it's, it feels conspiratorial. How can you look for the truth further and further away from the point of it actually happening? You know, you've, you've got to get in there right now and deal with it. It's an emergency. Her life was in danger. She is valuable, more valuable than all the money on this planet. Absolutely. And to wait, I think it was four and a half years. It was 2013 when the next report was published. Um, the reason I know that. Why did it take that, so long? Well, that's a very good question. Why should it take that long? Because I agree with you. And I was taught in the police culture that actually you should try and learn as quickly as possible what happened and what went on and then try and implement the findings, because you don't want another case to happen whilst you're spending four or five years reviewing something. I mean, there's no real answer for why it would take that long. But I Can know I that in Essex... It's glaringly obvious. <laughs> yes. It's just so glaringly obvious. I don't know what you're reviewing. It's like, review what? Like, it, it's clear, you know? How they were to be presented was probably the thing that they were struggling with. Because in that time, there were nine, well, across the years, there were nine murders that happened. And in fact, Essex had their own independent police complaints commission group, which I was asked to sit on. And that's why I understand with Essex, it was actually about multiple failures. It wasn't just about one case. And I know you feel very strongly about change happening, not just based on one case. In fact, your uncle also said that Maria's murder must be a catalyst for change and a catalyst across the board, not just one case. And he said, if there were ever a case that is an example of the state failing to protect a woman, then this is the case. And that probably is the reason why it took four and a half, five years for the findings to be published but in the wider context, there were multiple, there were eight other victims of domestic violence killed in Essex. And I was asked, would I help? And I saw systemic failure, but it was also about the professionals. It was about the attitude and the aptitude and leadership, lack of leadership. Because in the time, actually, there were nine reports that were written, internal reports in Essex, that talked about failure and talked about lack of resources and lack of training. And yet at no time, even though I think it had exceeded in terms of the cause of domestic violence had increased fivefold across yeah. those years, there was no resources matched 
to that increase. So they were still staffing the domestic violence units with very few specialist staff. They were still not training officers, despite Her Majesty's Inspectorate saying since 2005 that they were failing. They were failing in the area of public protection. So the micro and the macro for me was where the failure points were happening. And it's that lack of accountability. As a family, you were seeking to understand how and why it happened. And I think from knowing you, all, all families can understand human error happens. It does. We're None of us are infallible. But when you see the same pattern of failure, the same point of failure, the attitude, the aptitude, the leadership failure, the lack of priority, that was when it became a major problem for me. And I had to actually write to the chief officers in Essex and make that very clear to them because they seemed to be failing to take my advice as an expert at the time too, where I was saying this is repeated patterns of behaviour. It's not just you get out of jail once in the media because a family is saying we want answers. They want to know what you're doing to fix the problem. And there was no fixes coming out as far as I could see. These reports were being written, but with no recommendations, no solutions, no accountability. And I made it very clear. I was actually rereading through my report just before we jumped on where I made it very clear. And I didn't make many friends, Celia, let me tell you, I've never had this conversation with you, but I made it very clear that they were wasting my time and all the family's time. And they were leaving other women, future women at risk by not seeing this as a totality, a whole pattern of failure. And it was a leadership. I was saying it's leadership's responsibility here to change the culture. That was the biggest failing for me with Essex, their lack of acknowledging that. And for you, you know, we didn't have a dialogue at that time, but for four and a half, five years waiting for a report to come out, I can only imagine you are just left in no man's land suspended, waiting for the answers, because that's really what you wanted to understand. And they just weren't forthcoming. No, no, they weren't. And, and it just felt like a big, as you say, because there was no accountability, it was just a big report without any kind of real, um, I guess, result coming from it as I said before it was only because of the Human Rights Act article 2 that we even got an inquest and my solicitor who is an amazing woman Sarah Rika she just said you know be prepared it'll probably anti it'll be anti-climatical and I said no 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 I'm I'm holding true to the best result in my mum's name and the the jury the humanity, the level of awareness and humanity that the jury's verdict discovered, you know, the catalogue of errors, they they actually found more flaws within that conduct, you know, their ability to see what could have been done and that what wasn't and what needed to be taken responsibility for. How they formulated that statement, that summary at the end, brought tears to my eyes. It was It was just incredible that everyday people could see they could see what needed to be done on every different aspect. And and I found it, you know, it was it was worth it just to see people sit there and take some 
form of responsibility. And the thing is, is that is that some of them did say that they think they'd had the training, but they weren't sure because it was a kind of e-learning thing. And as I've said, you can't do this through e-learning. This is this is a visceral, you know, person to person, face to face workshop, interactive event. This 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 level of training, and and I think it's like you know. We can't afford to say that there is no money anymore. The government needs to foot the bill for the remaining forces to be fully trained. Uh, Safe Life estimates that training the remaining 19 front uh, the 19 frontline police forces would cost 55 million, a small figure compared to the Home Office's own estimate in 2019, which put the total cost of domestic abuse for victims um, that were identified in a single year at 66 billion. I mean. It's it's a no-brainer for everyone. And, you know, the thing is, is that the government implores victims to call the police, but only half of those victims will be met with the knowledge and understanding that could change and even save their lives. So it's all there. Absolutely. It's and I think when apparent, you do the cost sure analysis... I'm you haven't made friends because you're a truth speaker. I'm jumping in here. You see, being a truth-speaking crime analyst and an advocate for victims, well, it doesn't always make you popular. And it was not an easy time professionally for me. You see, I was called in to advise the IPCC after Maria's murder. And as I began to dig deeper and I started to join the dots, I found at least nine murders in Essex where the police had badly failed the victims. You see, as I said, Maria was sadly one of many and nine murders was disproportionately high for that area. Something was going wrong, which required closer scrutiny and attention. Well, I also discovered that there were nine internal reports highlighting that the police force was failing. Nine reports. Just think about that. Those reports take time, money, energy and resource to write. So why wasn't anything changing? Plus, I also discovered that Essex Police received consistent warnings from the independent inspectorate body who inspect the police to see how they're performing. Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabularies, or HMIC, and they'd received those consistent warnings since 2005. Essex Police were failing to ensure the public protection units were properly resourced, despite the fact that since 2005, reported domestic abuse allegations had trebled. Trebled. Just think about that. But the resource hadn't increased to meet the demand. So in spite of that, and in the wake of all the murders, a decision appeared to have been taken time and time again by senior management not to match resource to meet the demand and scale of the problem. So there I was, sat on an external Independent Police Complaints Commission group, again highlighting things that were already known. And I began to get deeply concerned and frustrated. More on that to come. So join me back in the Intelligence Cell next week for part three with Celia. And I'm sure it's really dawning on you now the importance of why I close each episode with a reminder to be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. You see, it really does matter and it can be the difference between life and death for some. So I'm going to end here with the reminder, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct.
And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>